Welcome to Trendsetters, the latest season of the podcast Long Story Short. I'm Peter Van Doywert, and this series is all about demystifying the world of quantitative trend-following strategies, how they work, why they work, and where they might fit in your portfolio. Thank you for joining us today. I am delighted to be joined by Robin Wigglesworth, global financial correspondent for the FT and now actually Alphaville editor at the Financial Times. He's also author of the bestseller Trillions. Robin, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me on, Peter. It's a real privilege. We're going to cover a lot of different things today, but I kind of want to start here. Last year in markets, at least for me, I think is where we reached what I would call peak stupid. We had Archegos at peak leverage. We had meme traders versus hedge funds, QE, fiscal stimulus, throwing fuel on the fire. One of the last times we even we talked, I think you even mentioned, or I said it was a Candy Crush type market, i.e. Robin Hood had become more of a video game. So maybe this year we've gotten to the other extreme. We've got the inverse Jim Cramer ETF. We've got the opposite of ARK ETF. So, you know, have we gone from peak stupid to something else? Are we breaking things with central bank interventions? Yeah, well, if we were a little bit drunk on all that central bank liquidity last year in fiscal stimulus, I think this is the nasty come down. Uh, it has been pretty remarkable how quickly things have shifted. And I think a lot of people going into 21 thought that was when we we're going to pay the piper, as it were, for the measures that we did in 2020, that inflation was going to go amok in 2021, the market's going to crash in 21. Uh, and actually, this was a little bit delayed. And lo and behold, this year has been pretty much a nightmare for everything, right? Uh, it's If we had the everything rally, we have the everything crash in 2022. Yeah, and I guess maybe this year's forays into some of the silliness from last year haven't been particularly well rewarded, if I were to sum it up. No, uh, I think this, uh, you know, it's it's always tempting to see like stupidity get punished as it were or dumb stuff or dangerous stuff get punished and you know markets it's it's, they don't always work that well right i mean people uh do the right thing and lose money people do the wrong thing and make money uh but it's pretty clear that you know anything that went up the most in the previous two years has generally been pummeled the most in 2022 uh whether it's you know crypto um, some thematic ETFs, meme stocks, the whole works. But, you know, there's still a lot of stupidity out there, right? Uh, sadly, it's not something that is a resource that we run out of in humankind. Yeah, I, I think exactly that's right. And and I'm going to borrow a quote that you quoted, which is, there's nothing so dangerous as a supposedly safe strategy. You know, as we transition into what I mean, we try on podcasts to be somewhat timeless, but I think, you know, what's happening in the UK and gilts is something maybe one of the defining stories of the post-COVID era. Hopefully it is one of them and it's not some footnote to something even worse. But I guess give us your take on everything LDI and, and budgets and gilts. No, it's it's been absolutely fascinating for, for a financial journalist like me. Um, it's It's interesting of course there's lots to write about but i do think like you say that this is really about the the past decade coming home to roost as it were because on one hand like ldi is an incredibly boring subject like i mean i know people in fixed income that don't really haven't really followed liability driven investing the actuarial mathematics behind it it kind of is it's a way to de-risk a pension plan right 
But as we see, sometimes, you know, quite often the safest strategies, what you thought was perfectly safe, has a really nasty tendency to be revealed to be quite high octane when the mood music shifts, as it has this year. And, you know, we saw in the LDI kind of the explosion of defined benefit plans, switching more and more to an LDI strategy to plug and de-risk their baby pension schemes. Um, and they've done so by using interest rate swaps. I, I, I've been covering LDI. I knew about this. It was a big driver, especially on the long end in the UK market, where it's a huge driver. Uh, I have to admit, I did not appreciate sufficiently how much they were basically getting synthetic long exposure um, and just how violent things could get when we had you know, massively out of bounds sell off in the gilt market triggered by the fiscal event uh, of a couple of weeks ago, and then how that rippled into just mass margin calls across the pension fund space. Uh, it's been fascinating to see. I, I guess maybe, you know, not everyone listening is going to understand the story. I mean, all we, you've described as they hedged their liabilities. So, you know, why is that? Why does that hurt? It shouldn't cause any trouble if I'm just reducing risk, no? No, that's true. I mean, it boils down to the fact that defined benefit schemes discount their future liabilities, the cost of the, the value of the future liabilities with long-term yields. So as long-term yields have fallen, it becomes harder for pension funds to make a safe, solid return that they can promise their kind of their, their policyholders or their members. Um, so they bought long gilts. And, and 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 duration in general um because basically when yields go up essentially that's good for them their funding ratio improves and when they go down well they've bought a lot of duration so they make it back on the assets so they're matching in theory their assets and liabilities but in practice you know these things quite often fall apart you know there are many examples of that where something that is in theory and in practice should be completely fine. And in fact, the conservative, solid way of doing things, you know, the details really kind of, um, when they interact with markets in practice, weird stuff can happen. I think we've seen that in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And I, and I guess part of the story isn't just that they've matched off their liabilities, because that in and of itself would be fine. But there's, you know, as the guilt market moves, there's a margin call. So there's cash that needs to be generated. So on the right side, you have this hypothetical liability that gets hypothetically marked without a cash flow. And on the other side of the balance sheet, you own a bunch of assets on leverage potentially that do move around and you have to post margin. And I guess that gets to my second part. They own a lot of other things, right? It's not just guilts that are part of the story here. Yes, like you say, it's basically a mismatch between the theoretical long-end liabilities and the very real margin call you're getting from your counterparties today because essentially you were long interest rate swaps um, and, and other things. And yeah, I mean, in that case, you have to meet that margin call. I mean, it's a liquidity problem, not a solvency problem. I do see sometimes also in the financial press because it's it's sometimes tempting or, or, or through ignorance, you scare people and think like your pension plan is going bust. Well, this is a liquidity issue primarily, uh, but they didn't have enough liquidity to meet these margin calls. So they, yeah, they had to sell 
everything that wasn't bolted down. So that ended up, they ended up selling gilts, long gilts. They sold linkers, they sold corporate bonds, they sold anything they could sell to meet these margin calls. And of course, that snowball thing sends yields even higher and triggers a new round of margin calls. And that's what the Bank of England in the end felt it had to step in and, and arrest that feedback loop. Yeah, I guess where do things, you know, I think they increased allocations to private assets. You know, where does that fit into the story? Yeah, I, I think this is one of the most fascinating uh, trends of the past decade that we've seen this massive migration of capital, especially in the institutional space where the pension plans, insurers, endowments, sovereign wealth funds into private capital, essentially private equity, venture capital, infrastructure, real estate, uh, direct lending funds, and so on. And I think it's because fundamentally they could see sometimes return challenges in the public markets. You know, as markets rallied higher, line, higher and higher and yields fell lower and lower, you just couldn't kid yourself in thinking you were going to make your return hurdle in the public markets. But in the private markets, you could at least, I mean, sometimes kid yourself. I mean, I think in reality, I don't think private market returns can be divorced from public market returns forever. But at least you could plausibly look yourself in the mirror and say, yes, I can totally make 15% consistently, no matter how much money me and my peers allocate to private equity. Those returns will always stay around 15 to 20%. Uh, and also, you know, cynically, but I am a journalist, so I'm pretty cynical. I think the artificial smoothness in private capital is incredibly tempting uh, when you're in a big institutional investor. You don't really want to see your portfolio move around with every sort of stock market puke uh, or bond tantrum. So the fact that private markets, you know, there's a little bit more flexibility of how you mark stuff and when you mark it, I think is very, very enticing. But of course, the problem is that, yes, if you are, let's say, a pension plan that had before 10% of your money locked up in illiquid stuff, you still had in 90% liquid-ish portfolio that you could sell to meet margin calls, to meet pension liabilities, and so on. But if you've been jacking up the pub private side, you maybe have 30-40% of your assets locked up for years to come, it puts a lot of pressure on that remaining liquid bucket. And I think that we've definitely seen some of that in the UK now, but it is what I worry could end up being a bigger, broader problem in many other parts of the world in the coming year or two. In a way, I think the it's something that Cam Harvey alludes to, kind of our tendency to use a backtest to, to evaluate how well something's going to work. And the backtest of boring LDI plus stable private credit and private equity creates a wonderful outcome. Yeah. No, I, I've also heard it called like a, a peso problem in that this was, I think, when Mexico used to link, uh, basically um, uh, peg its, its peso to the dollar. And then if you look at the back test, it looked like obviously it was free money to borrow money in the US and put it in Mexico until 94, when suddenly something that was not in that back test suddenly bit you in the ass. Um, I think the world is just filled with peso problems, but it's stuff that doesn't appear in the rearview mirror, stuff that is almost inconceivable to us. And markets have a nasty, but at least for me as a financial journalist, hilarious tendency to throw these curveballs at us all the time, which is why, yes, everybody loves a good backtest. But I think the wise people know not to rely on them too much.
Yeah, which I guess makes me think a little bit about Sterling and Erdogan the other day making some comments about the financial stability of the UK. I'm going to ignore his comments, but I guess you know it's been a strong dollar year. We see it across our systematic strategies, right? So trend has been following the dollar strength all year. So is the Sterling story the dollar story? Is it something broader? Like, what's your take on it and what are you hearing from people? No, I, I think it's both, right? It's very really just one thing in markets. Uh, I mean, starting with the UK side, I mean, clearly the UK has massive economic and financial challenges. I mean, this is a country that has been running a pretty outrageous current account deficit for, what, 10, 20 years now? And a huge budget deficit. Uh, the UK is a very advanced, developed economy, and I think it can do so for a long time. Debt to GDP is far lower than it was during World War II and you know, back in the day. Uh, but the UK has huge challenges. And I think people have been worried about that for a long time. And the fiscal event, as the UK government put it, landed at a very inopportune time uh, and just kind of was the snowball that got that avalanche running, essentially. So I think this is both current events, historical backdrop, uh, and UK issues that drove Sterling to a large extent. But like you say, I mean, it's not just Sterling that's been weak this year. I mean, the euro has been weak. The yen has been even weaker. Uh, and I, I do think the broad macro backdrop is a strong dollar regime that we have seen in the past, but I do think this is somewhat different and, and even more unique. I actually think the world is probably even more dollarized or dollar-based than ever before. Uh, and I do worry that essentially what we are seeing is the the Federal Reserve hiking until things break and things are going to break abroad far, far before we see stuff break in the US. And that is, I think, the, the thing for me is a sort of a, observer, at least I worry the most about right now. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Because, you know, US data still looks okay. But certainly the guilt market doesn't look okay, regardless of what the interventions are. And, you know, we have clients and people saying, wow, look at the the yield change today, they're up 30 basis points. But I'm looking at the price impact of some of the things in the LDI funds down 25% yesterday. You know, that's not 25 basis points, that's 25%. And I think going to your point on the Fed, so, so not to flatter you, I've been. I follow you on Twitter, and I and, and of course in Alphaville. And one of the things that you posted is sort of around this idea of Fed breaking things. And you mentioned Fed Governor Waller comparing the bond market to pumpkins. Yes, and, and Halloween. I mean, I find that's kind of extraordinary that anyone could think of something so trivial and when it has such impact. No, I mean. As a journalist, I tend towards being on the shrill side. We're always worried about the next thing. I think a lot of us are you know, in the market participants and journalists scarred by 08. So we're always looking for the next big disaster to happen. I think you know, bonds selling off is entirely natural. It's entirely natural given the macro backdrop. I think the concern is always when it becomes disorderly chaotic, causing feedback loops or, or real serious systemic damage in, for example, the UK pension space. and. I, I do think policymakers are very aware of these things. Uh, I was struck by Chris Waller's comments. And in his defense, I like it when Fed officials or anybody expresses themselves in sort of colorful metaphors. Uh, I did, admit, I have to admit, I was shocked that he would compare 
liquidity in the U.S. Treasury market, which is has atrophied quite dramatically. And I, I, I'm genuinely worried about the fragility of that market to the market for pumpkins around Halloween. I mean, I like the flippant kind of I like kind of that side of it. But if it betrays, and I think it does, a, a cavalier attitude to the health of the U.S. government bond market, that makes me very worried because I, th- I think that is, you know, the U.K. gilt market could break and that's a global event, but it's not a global cataclysm. The U- U.S. Treasury market, and we saw this in March 2020, I think came perilously close to a s- very serious problem. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a global financial crisis uh, on top of everything else. And, and I think that that's the interesting thing about March 2020. You know, the bond market was going the opposite direction of what the Fed intended, whereas now the bond market is going in the direction the Fed intends. So if they're going to be cavalier about the direction, then the magnitude is going to become incredibly problematic, I think. Yeah. And I mean, there's a tendency among market participants, as, as they call themselves, to, you know, you know, they always blame the Fed or central banks in general, for whatever they do. So when yields are falling and interest rates are falling, oh, they did, they're wrong, it's too easy, policy is too easy. And as soon as they switch, it's, oh, it's too it's too tough, they're breaking the world, it's all going to hell. And I broadly think central banks have not been infallible by far, but they've done a pretty okay job. Uh, and I agree, frankly, with what they did in, in 2020. I think you know, the fact that we didn't have a global financial crisis on top of everything else going on is largely thanks to them being super aggressive. And now we pay the price in the form of higher inflation. And for me, that seems to be a decent trade-off, that we didn't have a global financial cataclysm in March 2020. And now the cost is higher inflation and interest rates are going to go higher. And bond yields are going to sell off and people are going to lose money. But frankly, in most markets, you're still looking at pretty healthy profits over the decade. Pretty healthy profits, and and I was I was chastised by by Luke, our CEO, for making the comment that you know equity vol just hasn't picked up and hasn't been a crazy year in equity volatility. And he he looked at me, he's like, mate, the gilts market, but but in fairness, equity vol hasn't been there, right? Like it's not the typical shock. It's a we're ten months into a twenty percent decline. So what are you hearing much about why that's the case? No, it has been fascinating that, that that diversion between rates and equity vol, both implied and realized. Uh, and I actually think that shows that this is so far, with some notable exceptions like the guild market, has been an orderly adjustment. Like that markets are down is not a systemic issue. Markets go up and markets go down. People forgot that, but that happens and it's fine. It's healthy. Um I think so far, actually, if you told me before the year that the Fed would be jacking up rates by 75 basis points at multiple meetings in a row, I would have predicted carnage by now. And actually, so far, maybe the financial system is just a little bit more resilient, with maybe the UK as an exception, than, than we gave it credit. Um, but I think that's why the equity market is it's pricing in the fact that the risk free rate is going higher. That ha- that flows through to many areas. That will cause probably a recession, but we don't know how deep it is. And if it ends up being a deep recession, then equity markets will sell off more and rates will, will or equity will, will go higher. And if it ends up being a, a softish landing or a soft recession, then you know that's fine. Maybe it'll be like two thousands after the dot com bubble. Well, the markets puked, but the uh, the economic impact wasn't really that terrible, right? Um, I mean, that's why I'm crossing my fingers for it, at least. 
Yeah, I guess it's the least interesting story is market properly adjusts to rates over time and everything is fine. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't make for a very good reading. So I'm going to jump around because I, I actually want to talk about your book a little. It's been out, so this isn't meant to be promotional. It's been out for a while. Um, but they're just it's such a great read and there, there's some good anecdotes. And actually, I'm going to attempt to tie this back to quantitative strategies in the end, because after all, we're here to talk about quantitative strategies. But I'd like to start off just kind of the genesis of of the book in terms of the, you know, trillions is about the creation of passive investing, basically, if I'm going to sum it up in one line, maybe not perfectly. I, I like the AT&T story, for example, and, and, and Wells Fargo and Samsung. Can you just talk about those? Just share the story again. No, I mean, the, the index funds, it is the original quant strategy, right? It was the first strategy that was really enabled by the computer era on Wall Street and using computers, the massive hulking mainframes at the time, to crunch actual data to find out what was a good investment strategy. They were the OG quants. Um, and yeah, so Wells Fargo is where it kind of got to the promised land first. Uh, they were led by sort of one of the first sort of, uh, engineers, mechanical engineers, ended up on Wall Street, and you actually learned to program on IBM, IBM 301, I think it was back in the day. Uh, and he worked at Wells Fargo, uh, and they didn't have any buy-in for this index fund. I mean, they didn't even call it an index fund. I think it was the market portfolio inspired by Bill Sharp's work. Um, but it was AT&T and Samsonite that were the first backers on this. Samsonite got the first, most because they, the son of the founder had studied at Chicago. So he'd studied in Chicago in the 60s under people like Gene Farmer, uh, and others like that. So obviously, he he believed in market efficiency. And when he started working at the family firm, he looked at the pension plan of Samsonite and saw just like a bunch of useless active fund managers that were doing a bad job and charging a lot of money for that. Uh, so he called his teachers and Bill Sharp as well, who he knew a little bit, and said, like, does anybody manage money in the theoretically sound way? And they all directed them to Wells Fargo and Mac McCrown, it was called. Uh, and together they set up the first, not index fund, but index strategy uh, in 1971. Um, and it was just basically a separately managed account on behalf of Samsonite's pension plan that tracked the NYSE. Uh, and it was also dollar weighted. So it wasn't market cap weighted. So it was frankly a bit of a a mess to do so they hadn't really followed through on the execution side you know on any strategy there's this any strategy can look good on a back test but sometimes when it hits the road you realize the wheels don't work or the execution is it lets you down uh, i know you guys spend a lot of time working on execution costs and they hadn't really done that side of it and this is you know the pre-electronic trading era uh, but the really big so that was the first one but the, I think the prime mover behind indexing really kind of taking off in the 70s was AT&T's pension system. So they were called baby bells. They're all splintered into different parts, but they all talk to each other. And they basically were the biggest institutional investor in the U.S. equity market. They basically invested in hundreds of active equity fund managers. And occasionally they get together and look at it. So, well, actually, we're kind of getting the market return minus all these trading costs. And trading costs were huge at the time. And also the, the, the cost of compensating the, the portfolio managers. So that's why there were several of the baby bells, especially Illinois baby bell, I think was the biggest prime mover, started writing 
very, very big checks at the time to the first three index funds, which was Wells Fargo, American National Bank of Chicago, and Battery March in Boston. Uh, and, and they were sort of that, that was the genesis for the passive revolution to come. I think they get attacked from both sides. And you say that often, which seems unfair. Well, you know, it's everybody gets attacked once they're big. Um, no, I, I mean, there's so many sort of attack points uh, uh, against the passive boom, uh, some of which I think are, are hogwash, like the, the, the idea that ma- passive has made the markets more prone to boom and bust, more volatile, less volatile, um, you know, less inefficient. Uh, there's so many things. I mean, for all sorts of reasons, I think it's, it's generally self-serving uh, or flawed. Um, I think that there are issues around like the power that accrues to index providers themselves. So the people that create indices, uh, you know, they, they've been called gatekeepers of capital. I don't think that's unfair. Uh, I think there's too much innovation maybe going on in that space that not all index funds or ETFs are created equal. There's a world of difference between, uh, let's say, you know, you know, uh, will equity index fund being sold at seven basis points and something that's like a triple inverse VIX ETF or ETN. Um, and, but I think the, the hardest problem, and I think the one that's going to become the biggest issue, frankly, has become a bigger issue earlier than I thought. When I wrote this book and I was writing columns about it at the FT, it wasn't, didn't feel front and center, but it has certainly become so in the last year or two just, but is the fact that the economics of indexing, of index funds, means that the big will become bigger. And already the big three, which are BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street in that order, uh, are, are, are huge. They are the single biggest shareholders in almost every single major US company already, and quite a lot around the world. And given where we're heading, it's not inconceivable that within the next sort of 20 years or so, they will control 50% of the shares of every major company in the world now trees don't grow to the heavens right there is maybe at some point a finite limit or there'll be antitrust busting but i think is where we're heading uh, i think is something that you know makes me a little bit uneasy and, and increasing quite a lot of other people as well it seems and what does that do for shareholder votes does it make companies beholden to those three or are they lazy in terms of how they vote well, I mean, this is why I think this is becomes a really fascinating subject. Um, so if you move beyond the, this, the statement of fact that they're already quite big and will in all likelihood become even more dominant in the shareholder registry of companies, what does that actually mean? Now, I don't believe there was ever a golden era of corporate governance. I think that's complete and utter bullshit. I think it's something that people you know, come up with, like, the, there was a golden era of TV or music. It's like, we always think music from our early teens or late teens was the best, and all modern music is terrible. I think corporate governance used to be atrocious, and I think it's generally better now. Now, are passive investors better or worse at corporate governance? Well, that's kind of a qualitative judgment. I can see the arguments on both sides, that on one hand, and this is an argument that BlackRock and Vanguard make a lot, that they are de facto permanent capital. Like if you have a bad quarter, hedge fund ABC might get the hell out of Dodge the next day and they just won't stick around. If even a Carl Icahn rocks up on your registry, he might like harass you for a few months, maybe a few years. But fundamentally, he's not probably going to stick around either. Vanguard is going to be there forever. So you have to listen to them. 
do they have enough people to actually exert proper control? People say, no, they don't. They're lazy. They still devolve too much to Glass-Lewis and ISS. Uh, I think, frankly, most active managers probably do that as well. Uh, that's the dirty secret. Active managers aren't much better on that front. Um, and then, obviously, at some point, it gets to the point, well, are they too controlling? And I think that's where we're kind of getting more concerned now. The, the criticism for the past decade has mostly been that index funds are lazy owners. They're passive investors, they're passive owners, and they encourage or at least don't discourage corporate sloth and waste. Now, I think the worry is that they are becoming overly active, like because pushed by things like ESG, that they are getting involved in stuff that really shouldn't be getting involved in. Should they be dictating to an oil company that they should no longer be an oil company? I mean, they would say they're not doing that, of course, but that's the, the perception. And then sadly, occasionally, perception does become a little bit reality. So this has become a very noisy subject over the past just 12 months, really. Yeah, and I think that's definitely the case. If executives are going to make political statements on some of these topics, then you're naturally going to have some debate on that topic, whether you like it or not. Exactly. It's unavoidable. So I have two distortive effects that I want to talk about. One, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if you think it's a myth. And the other one, I'll argue hard with you if you think it's a myth. <laughs> so the first one is that everyone buys passive. So when they unwind, the market's going to crash. I mean, it feels a little bit like if you drive a car, then if you crash, there'll be like people hurt. I mean, fundamentally, people need to evolve from seeing an index fund as something unique unto itself. It's just a vehicle, a way of packaging up a strategy. And yes, if everybody pulls out, like if we all pull out all our life savings from the stock market tomorrow, whether it's in active funds or index funds, will the market crash? Well, yes, there'll be more sellers than buyers and stocks will puke. But it doesn't change whether it's an index fund or active fund. Active funds still will typically carry more cash than an index fund. So they have a bit of a buffer, like an index fund, if you pull money out, broadly speaking, it kind of does have to sell. But in practice, what we've seen through every big downturn is that money and passive tends to be stickier. And there's been various suggestions around this. I think it's because on one hand, I have a low view of the, the common intelligence. I think we do dumb things in isolation and as groups all the time. But broadly speaking, if you give people enough information, they don't do heinously dumb things and they kind of accept that. So if you buy an index fund and you say, look, if the market pukes 20%, you'll be down 20%. They're not going to like that, but they're okay with it. It's okay. If you're an active manager and says, oh, we'll offer downside protection when the market pukes, we'll be like, we'll be coasting, we'll be nimble. And actually, lo and behold, on average active, that actually does worse around the big breaks because usually most have them have on average been leaning into risk. Uh, actually, you're going to hate that. That's when you pull out the money. And if you look at like the big some fun flows around big breaks like 08 or March 2020, money in index funds were, was actually surprisingly sticky. So I think there are micro issues around things like ETFs and illiquid asset classes, although I generally become more positive around that as well. I think that myth, at least, is, is not one I'm worried about in that I'm sure at some point we'll have another major market break and people will blame index funds because lo and behold, index funds will be close to the scene of the crime because they're everywhere now. But I don't think that will fundamentally change the reality that active is the price setter and 
passive is, is a price taken. So then I'm going to go the one which I, I largely agree with what you're saying. I, I mean, we crashed well before in 1987, 1932. We found lots of ways to go down in asset classes without passive. But the ETF market is one where, on the one hand, there's about, I don't know, 10, 50,000, who knows how many ETFs in the world. So you're making a discretionary choice there anyway. So I'm going to say there's some part of the passive market isn't passive. But what really bothers me in, in the ETF market, and I come from a risk mitigation background, are leveraged ETFs and what I would call kind of bastardization of passive and giving retail, you know, not guns, but AK-47s to just kind of go shoot around in the markets. No, I, I think we are completely on the same page here in that um, I, I think like active and passive, they're very useful shorthands, but like every shorthand and certainly when it comes to some convoluted subjects like finance and markets, they miss a lot. There is no true active in that many active managers are in practice to varying degrees passive index huggers. They always have been through history and they still are to this day. We know where there are various ways to show it. That doesn't necessarily mean that bad. It's, you know, index oriented or index aware, right? But, you know, they, they hug an index. They're not purely, truly active. And many big active shops use ETFs to express a view. In the same way, obviously, passive, like, yeah, like you say, you are making a choice between buying an S&P 500 index fund, a total stock market fund, a global equity fund, a Russell 2000, a Russell 3000. There are all sorts of active choices throughout that uh, process that makes it not perfectly passive. And actually, I mean, like the, the construction of indices is to a certain extent in most cases, actually a, a qualitative approach, um, not just a quantitative one. Uh, so I have actually always seen passive as, frankly, you talked about early, like cheap quant, but that's how I see it. I think actually it's a continuum of complexity, but systematic strategies and index funds and ETFs are the dumb, very simple, very cheap systematic strategy just by buys buy all the stocks according to the weighting of the s p 500 and then on the other hand you have strategies like some of the ones that man used that are you know systematic but highly complex highly sophisticated and therefore more expensive um, and yes i think some of the leverage etfs and that the etfs especially have evolved from something that was a way to wrap up a tradable passive product to just becoming a broader more powerful wrapper in its own right. And I actually think it is possibly going to support the mutual fund, unless something like a better wrapper uh, comes along. We can kind of see the ETF as a cent, not just in passive products, whereas most of the AUM still is, but more and more active strategies uh, are getting packaged up. And I think if you put up an active strategy like ARC in an ETF, I don't think that strategy is particularly smart, but at least you're not pretending it's passive. I do have a problem with the leverage ETFs, the inverse ETFs, because frankly, I think they seem to me like if they quack like a duck, look like a duck, sound like a duck. I mean, it's it's basically a way of circumventing regulatory controls around what kind of derivatives ordinary investors can gain exposure to. Uh, there are products here that just have no conceivable value to anybody except the market maker and the product manage behind them. I mean, the VIX ETP ecosystem is my favorite example. So these there's a whole cornucopia of long VIX and short VIX products. And VIX itself, as you know better than me, is like already like a bundle of basically option prices. 
that complex, that VIX ETN complex, has destroyed more money than Birdie made off it. Like whether you go long or short, overall, that has just been a massive capital incinerator for zero societal value. And we don't like talking about societal value because like it gets it gets woolly. Like, who am I, Robin Wigglesworth, to say this like levered ETF is, is dumb or this one's smart? I mean, I, I don't believe in that myself, really. I'm a, I'm a nice liberal, but some of these things are just so heinously dumb. I wish a regulator would just say that is stupid. Nobody should be allowed to trade that. If they want to do it, they do it in a hedge fund strategy. That's fine. You guys can blow up your own money, your client's money, but that should never, ever, ever touch into the, like cross into the retail space in any form or fashion. So I want to talk a little bit about quant because you made a comment earlier, kind of that passive is the initial quant strategy. And I've heard you say before that you think eventually the whole world is just going to be quant strategies and equities, or maybe I'm bastardizing your quote, but it's something along those lines. Like, what are your thoughts there? Well, I mean, it's, it's my point on that continuum and that I think there are things that humans, I mean, man doesn't have a big black box that you hit a button on every morning and then you go to the beach or go to the pub, right? There are humans involved in every part of the process. So when I say quant, it's not a human-free uh, future. But I do think that, broadly speaking, there are certain things that machines are better at than humans. And when I look at the active, fundamental, discretionary, large-cap equity space, for example, I struggle to see what value it adds, apart from maybe the, the more abstract making markets efficient. But I think, you know, quant strategies help doing that as well, that we, we have a tendency to bifurcate the world between active and passive, quantum discretionary and we all know it's a sliding scale or it gets blurred and but i do think that the future is fundamentally going to be far more quantitative with humans still playing a huge important role but a very different role than they have in the past and it'll be more that sliding scale where the vast majority of asset allocation will be too cheap or basically free beta like i think the price of beta in most markets is going to trend towards zero over time it's basically there in equities already uh, it'll probably go there in fixed income over the next 10, 20 years. And then you have a subset, let's say 20% of the global AOM universe that is going to be essentially just investing. It's just going to be considered investing. And the whole idea of dividing the world into quantum and active and is just going to become a bit of a, sort of a, a weird historical thing like portable beta or terms that you don't really hear that much that it's just going to be considered good investing and bad investing. And some people are good at it. Some people are bad at it. And I think the people that are good at it are probably going to be using computers and data more than the people that are bad at it. And do you think the quants have space to go after privates? Are the privates, you know, are they quaking in their boots waiting for the quants to show up? I do not think they are quaking in their boots. I think they are intrigued at how they can do some of this stuff themselves. Uh, I do think we are going to have a quant arc in in, in in privates as well. But obviously, it's just such a radically different market. And it's in the same way that people have discovered, sometimes belatedly, but I think it's well known now, you can't just copy and paste an equity fractal framework into fixed income, even though they're both semi-public markets and fixed income. You know, privates are just very different. But fundamentally, look there's a quote from Jack Trainer that I love. He was the, the, the head of the CFA Institute, oh, the CFA Journal at one point. I mean, 
old one of the OG quants. He said, you might not get rich by using all the available information, but you'll definitely become poor if you don't. So broadly speaking, if quant means more rigorous, scientific, unemotional use of data to attain better investment outcomes, then yes, I think privates is going to also going to evolve into becoming more quantitative, but it's going to look radically different than than like say large cap U.S. equities or, or even fixed income looks like. So I'm I might counter argue against the private capital world having a lot of alpha, as you might expect I would. <laughs> and, and, and I can, I have lots of good anecdotes. Like uh, there's a dog walking app that was you know funded by a bunch of different VCs and they kept losing the dogs. Now I would argue it's easy to pick up the dog and walk the dog. It's the returning of the dog that's incredibly important to the process. And they weren't very good at that. So I'll leave that to the side. I, I'm not going to debate you on VC. But I, I guess I'm going to touch a little on that point that you made about systematic, but the idea of diversification for, you know, you're a retail investor, you're a pension investor. I mean, everyone looks bond equity. Maybe they've dabbled in commodities. Is systematic the only place they're going to find things like commodities, short bonds, FX, things that, you know, they just aren't inclined to trade on their own well? No, I mean, multi-asset, I think broadly speaking, you know, this is not a new insight. You know, Markowitz discovered it, you know, many decades ago, but diversification is maybe not the only free lunch. Uh, there's also, you know, a few others maybe out there, but it's certainly an obvious one. And I think if you are doing trend following in a limited set of asset classes, that becomes harder. It has been an interesting trend to see both in existing strategies or as standalone funds a growth of like frontier market trend following uh, stuff like cheese prices, uranium. Uh, there are many things that trend to varying degrees and they are less correlated. So, you know, maybe in the future we'll be sort of doing trend following at NFT prices. I pray to God not, but who knows, right? There's this unlimited amount of stupidity out there as we discussed. And, and actually, the more stupid and, and the more there's a tendency for a thing to just go up inexplicably for a long time, the better, I suppose. I, I guess I might just, given, given your seat, because you see everything, uh, I might finish up with one last question. You know, given the kind of what I, might, I don't want to call it peak breaking things here, but we're on our way to breaking things kind of theme we've had in this in, in the talk. Besides auto callables, like what do you fear in this market? I fear mostly, I mean, there are many things. I mean, I, I worry about credit. Um, I worry specifically maybe about private credit and the interaction with the private equity world. I feel that world is very incestuous. There are a lot of firms that lend and invest to each other constantly. Uh, I, I'm not worried about that being systemic, but I think there are issues there. Um, but that's kind of maybe it's a classic sort of journalist heebie-jeebies kind of oh, this has grown a lot, ergo, I worry about that. You see that a lot with the passive, like, oh, passive has grown a lot, ergo, passive is the new CDOs, essentially. Uh, and, you know, obviously there are tons of nuances in these things. Um, I, China is an obvious one. Um, I worry about cyber. I mean, when I talk to smart people, it's the one thing that they say, like, everything else, like market's puping 20, 30, 50%. That's kind of within the bounds of what we've been through. It's scary and it's horrible and it ends careers and so on. But, you know, that's frankly life. Um, cyber is one of those things that people keep kind of smart. People smarter than me are getting more and more worried about that. 
but I kind of worry about the stuff that we don't worry about most. So the LDI thing is a perfect example of that. It's always what you don't worry about that bites you the most violently. So like if you buy junk, like if you buy a high yield credit, like if you lose money, if that company goes bust, like that sucks. But it's kind of in the name. You know that. You, you run risk. People buy risk knowing that you know the risk could materialize. There might end up being more risk and reward. Uh, I think that's why, for example, in 08, what really kind of scared the crap out of people, from my understanding, and friends that still bear the emotional scars of it, it wasn't like the really, it wasn't like CLOs keeling over or even some of the property debt. It was the triple A top tranches of CDOs. It's stuff that you thought was kind of super safe, that you thought was completely fine. I think LDI is a good example of that. It's not to compare those two, but it's the stuff that we don't even know about that suddenly comes out of nowhere and smacks you in the face. I think the Bank of England has discovered this. I I, I, I very much doubt that they've really thought much about this. Uh, and, and that's the kind of stuff that's scary. It's not the kind of stuff that, oh, Credit is cracking, lots of companies are going bust, and that might ripple into the banking sector. It's kind of bad, but we've seen that before. We've seen that movie. We know what to do. We know kind of how it ends. This other stuff, and I think what I worry the most about is that we have been in an exceptional era for over a decade now, uh, and exceptional eras tend to lead to exceptionally interesting things. And we are not nearly at peak breaking moment yet. Uh, certainly, if the Fed keeps jacking up rates by 75 basis points every meeting, then we're going to see more than just UK LDI uh, take a pasting. Well, on that uh, somewhat cheerful note, <laughs> we'll finish our talk. It's, it's really been a lot of fun. Thanks for, for taking the time to join us, Robin. No, no, thanks so much for inviting me, Peter.